It is good to see you. It really is good to see you guys today. I enjoy gathering together on the weekend, hanging out a little bit. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus or uh, in the chapel, warehouse, wherever you might be, maybe on a podcast, on the internet. Uh, we're glad that you're along also. Um, listen, it's late spring. You know what I'm looking forward to? Football, okay? Can't wait for the fall. Hey, recently the NFL had their draft. Did you see that? Anybody see that? Yeah, well, most of you know, a lot of you know that I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and the Broncos drafted Tim Tebow. And that's right. That's right. I cried. I wept. I, I told... I told my wife, I said, I think they're going to do this, and if they do, I'm just I'm going to have an experience. You know, it's just going to be an emotional, and it was. It was incredible. We're excited in Denver. It's going to be rough cheering for next Gator, but we're, when it, once the mile high air clears the swamp uh, out of his lungs, he'll be great. But um, I I thought this. I thought you guys probably don't know this, but Tim Tebow and I have a lot in common. We really do. I thought of at least I thought of at least three things. Uh, number one, we're both Christians and kind of outspoken about our our faith. Uh, number two, uh, we both now have a connection to Colorado. I grew up there, and he's he's gonna it's gonna be a part of his future. And uh, number three, we're both quarterbacks. You guys probably didn't know that, but pretty accomplished quarterbacks. Uh, he's the best that's ever played in college, and uh, I was just a quarterback there in Colorado. You didn't know this. <clears throat> I'm, you know, it's a probably pretty surprising because I'm short, and I really am, but, but I'm slow. And, um, <laughs> and I tried to make up for those two attributes with heart and leadership and passion. And uh, I remember playing in Colorado one fall, and there, you never know what the weather's going to be like. Like right now, it was snowing this week, you know, and today it could be 70, 80 degrees. And, and in the fall, it's kind of like that. And when it snows in the fall, it's wet, you know, and it gets muddy. And I remember one night we were playing a game, and it, it started to snow, and it got wet, and it got muddy. That's just great for football. But we were the home team, I think, and we had probably... I mean, we were the visiting team. We had white jerseys, I think. And, and the, the other team had kind of gold, but it wasn't that dark gold. And by the second half, we were all so muddy that you couldn't tell who was for you and who was against you. And so I had a great second half. I completed most of my passes. <laughs> but a lot of them were to the other team because I, I couldn't tell who was for me and who was against me. Now, you may relate to that in life. <laughs> you, you wondered where that was going. You know, there are times in life where you just wonder who's for you and who's against you. There are times in life where your circumstances and relationships can be so confusing that it's hard to tell who's a friend and who's an enemy. And sometimes maybe you're there right now where you're going through something and you feel like that those that you don't even know and that you don't even, you know, you're not related to in any way are more supportive to you than those who should be supportive. And it's hard to tell who your friends are, who your enemies are. It can be, you know, you may be trying to, to discern God's will and to discern God's voice. I know um, when we moved to South Carolina, 
I was trying to discern the will of God. It was a very difficult time. In fact, some of you don't even know, but when we were thinking about planting a church here, this was not choice number one. Choice number one was Denver, Colorado. I wanted to go there. I grew up in the Columbine area or out in Green Mountain, Columbine. And, and uh, this is before all, everybody knew what Columbine was. And, um, and I really wanted to plant a church there. And I rented a... Actually, I borrowed my father-in-law's pickup truck and drove all around uh, southwest Denver for a whole weekend just praying. And God wasn't there that weekend. He did just... And I, you know, it, for me, my way of discerning God, I, I didn't want to make the mistakes of going where he wasn't leading. And, uh, and so it, just, it, it was kind of disappointing. But when, when you have disappointment, understand. In fact, I was reading a scripture this morning uh, that uh, David was talking about. When you're discouraged, ask yourself, why am I discouraged? Always question your discouragement and remember who is ultimately in control. And in those moments of discerning God, God, what do you want? And kind of... It seems so upside down, and this is where I'd like to go, and this is what it seems like. And then now, you know, 22 years, 23 years later, you go, well, I can see why we're right in the center of God's will uh, right here. But even in moving here, there was one particular individual that I thought should have been the closest to me and should have been a cheerleader for me, and boy, they weren't. And it was just weird. It's not that everybody has to agree, and, and when you think you're hearing God... You need to bounce that off some people because sometimes it's just bad burritos. How many of you have a testimony there? And you need to bounce it off some spiritually wise people and it's okay to, for people to push back. That's great. This one individual just did some bizarre stuff and it was very confusing to me and sometimes it can be that way. Sometimes it can be hard to, to hear God. It, it might have been your parents. Maybe in growing up your parents should have been your biggest cheerleaders and, and they weren't. They weren't. And maybe even today you're having a hard time Believing lies about yourself, you ought to believe the truth, but you've been told lies for so long. And those who are your friends, those who are, should be for you, are against you. What do you do in those type situations? How do you handle it? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. And we're going we're gonna to look at Acts chapter 23, which is a very interesting chapter. Here's what I'm hoping will happen today. I hope, number one, that you'll get a little bit better, clearer understanding of God's Word. That's always what we want to do. And secondly, I, I hope you'll be able to apply three very simple truths. This is going to be a simple message today. Uh, Einstein one time said, when the, when the answers are simple, uh, God is at work. And I like that. Simple doesn't mean easy. Simple just means kind of, okay, I get that. Now, how do, I, how do I do that? And so three very simple principles from this chapter uh, this week. And let me set up the chapter for you. We're in, we're in a short series called Arrested. And it began with Paul getting arrested. Last week from Acts 22, we talked about the fact that Paul had a very bad day. Um, I mean, you talk about your bad days. His bad day was incredible. He came home from a mission trip, excited about sharing what's going on in his life, went to church, actually went to the synagogue, a fight broke out. He got beat up. They were trying to kill him. And then Roman soldiers came and saved him, but actually arrested him. And now they're going to torture him to find out why everybody was beating him up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Go ask the guys who were beating him up. Don't torture the guy that's getting beat up. But that's what they were going to do because they needed to find out what's going on here. Why, why is this guy disturbing the peace? About the time they're ready to you know, do the, the torture... Uh, he says, hey, uh, by the way, I don't think it's legal to torture a Roman citizen. 
And they said, well, no, it's not. Are you a Roman citizen? He says, bingo, that's me. And now they got a real problem because he can get them in trouble for breaking the law, but they need to find out why everybody's so upset at him. They've they got to figure this deal out. So here's what they do. The commander goes, I'm going to, since we can't torture him, let's put him in front of the, the, the church council, the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, which is the, the highest kind of judicial thing in the land. And, and uh, it's not a separation of church and state thing like we have here in America. It was all kind of entangled so that the, you know, the religious deal and the political deal, it's all kind of one and the same. And so they take him to the Sanhedrin to stand before the Sanhedrin. And that's, that's where we kind of find it in Acts 22.30 so that they can figure out, uh, is this guy guilty of something? Do we need to charge him with something? And so in Acts 22.30, it says, The next day the commander ordered the leading priests into session in the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about. So he released Paul to have him stand before them. Seemed like a good idea to him. <laughs> this is really an awkward situation. In fact, what we're going to read, Paul is about as welcome at the Sanhedrin as Nancy Pelosi would be at a Sarah Palin fundraiser. I mean, this is, this is just, this is fu- funny stuff. I, I'm, ser- I'm serious. This is because Paul used to be close friends with these guys. This is who he was going to be. He was groomed to be. He was educated to be. He was going to be one of these guys. Now he's wearing a different jersey. Now he's on the other team. And so this chapter plays about like a Jerry Springer episode. You ever see one of those? It, it, we're going to see that in Acts 23. It's one of the most bizarre kind of chapters uh, in the New Testament, especially of the historical things that happened. So I want to read it. I want to read it. Chapter 23, verse 1. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, Brothers, if you have a, a Bible that you can write in or uh, you follow along somewhere, maybe on your uh, PDA or whatever, you may want to highlight brothers because we're going to come back to it. It's actually a significant word in understanding some things that go on here. Paul, Paul began, Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. <laughs> in other words, he's saying, I don't know what's up with you guys, but I've been doing the right thing. I mean, I've got a clear conscience before God. Watch what happens next. Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him in the mouth. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a great start. How I mean, you know that's a good start? You know, sucker slap that guy, you know? Okay, come on, let's, let's give it to him. So watch how Paul responds. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. <laughs> Probably not a good idea. Uh, let me just explain something about the characters here. This is what, something I love about the Bible. The characters are real. Okay? These are real people. They're like you and I. The Bible, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. We do not believe the characters are infallible. Paul is normal as can be. You know, sometimes we can go, Paul, this guy wrote all this stuff. You know, we need to do exactly what he does. No, sometimes we learn to do what he doesn't do. In other words, everybody's good for something, even if it's just to be a bad example. Would you agree with that? And this is one of those cases where Paul blows it. He responds in anger and in sarcasm. How many of you have the gift of sarcasm? Did you know that's not a spiritual gift? But it's a good thing. I, I have that gift. And so, and so Paul says, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself, ordering me struck like that? Those standing near Paul said to him, I, I can hear him do this in a whisper. Do you dare insult God's high priest? 
Now, Ananias, who was the high priest, the high priest is supposed to be the most holy guy in Israel, okay? This guy's not. He literally is corrupt. You look at the background on this guy, he's wealthy. Wealth doesn't make you corrupt, but he's, he has corrupted his position to gain wealth. Um, he, um, he just does terrible things. I mean, he, I'm not going to get into it. I, I love the history in the background, but let's just say this guy is not a good guy. And yet he is the high priest, okay? And the guy says, you know what? You, you're not supposed to speak, speak like that to the high priest. And so Paul says, I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest. I'm not sure... The high priest is dressed in a lot of bling and stuff, you know? I mean, it's hard to miss the high priest. Okay, he's, you, you walk into the room, there's 12, 15 guys, you're the high priest, you got the bling and all this kind of thing. Not sure Paul's square here. Now, s- some people who are, you know, commentators on this will say, well, you know, we know that Paul had an eye problem, sight problem, maybe he wasn't seeing good. Now, you'd see this guy, Okay. Here's what, I think he's using his sarcasm to say something like this. I didn't realize he's high priest. High priests don't act like he does. You know, that, that's kind of where it's going. And it, it starts to go downhill from, from here. And then Paul says, for the Scriptures say you must not speak evil of your rulers. So he's going, okay, I want to abide by the Scriptures. Now, so he's off to a bad start. You've got a whole group of people who... You're the enemy, and you're, you're, you're their enemy, okay? That's, that's kind of, and they're determining, actually, whether you live or die here. And so Paul realized that some members of the high council were Sadducees, and some were Pharisees. In other words, here's a group of Republicans and Democrats, two, two groups, okay? And they, most of the time they're arguing with each other, but now they're united. Paul has united his country against him. Okay, so he's got a problem. I love how astute politically he is. Watch what he does. And so he shouted, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, as were my ancestors, and I'm on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. That means nothing to us. I mean, resurrection of the dead means something. That means Jesus Christ is who he said he was. But he says, I'm on trial because of this. And he makes it a political issue of the day. And this divided the council. The Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels or spirits. That's why they're sad, you see. (laughs) Because they don't believe in the resurrection or angels or spirits. So they're sad, you see. That's how to remember that. But the Pharisees believe in all of these. So there's a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him. Well, they did just a few minutes ago, but now they're enemies. He's an enemy of their enemy, so he's now their friend. (laughs) Kind of funny how that works, huh? Changed jerseys really quickly. They shouted, perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. As the conflict grew more violent, this is the Jerry Springer part. They're throwing chairs. You know, it's just crazy. Things are going nuts. Says as the, as the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid that they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. It's a sad day when the cops got to come into a church service during a board meeting and, and bring order. You know, have you ever been in a church like that? I have. that's a whole nother story. Verse 11. That night the Lord appeared to Paul. 
Paul's by himself now. Imagine how he's feeling. I mean, it just, he is getting beat up, beat up, beat up, beat up. Now he's going to give his case and it turns into a riot. He doesn't know what's next. His world is upside down, totally upside down. That night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. We'll come back and we'll deal with that. So what do you do? What do you do when your circumstances are confusing, you're getting mixed signals from people all around you, even mixed signals from God? What you don't do is get angry like Paul did and kind of incite the thing. But you need to understand, even before we get some lessons here, you need to understand that when you become a Christian and you walk closely with God, there are going to be some confusing circumstances and situations. There just are. And your relationship with God is probably going to make some things even more confusing than they already were. Because you are in, whether you know it or not, you are in a world that is upside down in most of its values. In a world that is diametrically different than the kingdom of God. Let me just go through a few things. The world says if you want to be great, you need to climb to the top of the ladder so others can serve you. Christianity says the greatest among you will be your servant. That's Jesus in Matthew 23. The world says suffering should be avoided at all costs. Christianity says rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. The world says, get as many toys as you can in life. He who dies with the most toys wins. Christianity says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet he forfeits his soul? The world says, look out for number one. You know, if you don't have your back, nobody else will. Christianity says, carry each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The world says, never let anybody take advantage of you. You know, don't let somebody, listen at work, don't you let somebody take advantage of you. Financially, don't you let somebody take advantage of you. Christianity says, Jesus, if someone wants to sue you to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. The world says, never let anybody disrespect you. That's a big deal, man. Don't let anybody diss you. Christianity said, you know, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, Turn the other one also. world says, be the master of your own destiny. Christianity says, Jesus said, you know, Father, I'd like to have this cup taken from me, but you know what? It's not my will. Whatever you want to do, you do it. The world says, hold on to this life as long as you can. Christianity says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. The world says, don't get mad, just get even. And Jesus, when his disciples came to him and said, how many times do we have to forgive? Seven times? And he says, no, how about seven times 70? The world says, God helps those who help themselves. Did you know that's not even in the Bible? God helps those who help themselves. Christianity says, no, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. So I I just wanted to give you that background to know that when you become a Christ follower and you really follow Him, 
there are going to be some upside down things all the time. You're going to be at, at odds with um, the, the value system that's out there. And don't let... <laughs> the constant battle is going to be value creep, the, the world's values creeping in uh, to, where, to where you live. So you've got to be careful. You've got to watch that. But what do you do when your world seems upside down? Maybe relationally, there's <clears throat> people that should be your friends. They're not. People that are enemies that seem like they're friends. What do you do when you're having a hard time really making sense of what's going on in your, your world's upside down? Three simple principles. Here, here they are that I see from this passage. Number one, remember that your friends can become enemies. Just a basic thing. Remember that your friends can become enemies. We said before, the guys in the Sanhedrin, some of them were probably Paul's close friends, and now they're enemies. My question was this as I studied this. How does that happen? Because we've seen it happen. You see it happen. Somebody that you're close to, you guys are, you know, best friends forever, you know. And, uh, and, you're, and, and you're close. And, and, and then, and then that, that person is not, not just distant from you, but they become an antagonist to you. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, two or three things. Friends become enemies when affections change. When affections change. Um, I remember when I got married. Uh, I, I lived, before I got married, I, I lived in a house with uh, five or seven of my closest friends, guys. We even parked our motorcycles inside the house. How would you have liked to rent it from us? We never, ever got a damage deposit back. And, uh, you know, we had a band, and it was just a crazy life. And uh, then I got married. Two of us got married. It was like the other guys were, what happened to you? You know, I mean, we were close, and we were all this kind of stuff, and now she is here. And without knowing it, they became the enemy. My single friends became the enemy of my marriage. I didn't even know it. Sometimes there are people that are close to you that become the enemy of your marriage, and you don't even know it. Maybe you're going through tough times. Hey, guess what? If you're married, you're going to go through tough times. Did you know that? Let me just tell you that again. If you're married and you're not in a tough time, you're headed for one. <laughs> I can't speak with much authority on anything else, but I can speak with authority on that. I've been married for, I don't know, 33 years, I think. Something like that. But women go, you don't know how long you've been married? I'll figure it out. Okay. What's that for? That I can't remember how long I've been married or that I've been married 33 years. And we have, it goes like this. It goes like this. We kind of try to level them out a little bit, but you know what? You're going to have tough times. And sometimes you're in an extended tough time. And if one of your girlfriends says, I wouldn't put up with that from you, I wouldn't do that. I don't know why you're doing all that. Now, I'm not talking about physical abuse here or whatever. I'm talking about, you know, the stuff. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That person is an enemy of your marriage. They're an enemy of your marriage. And you need to watch for that. Watch for that. We need to be champions of one another's marriage. Understand, we can go through stuff and all that kind of thing. Um, affections change. Sometimes, though, in a marriage, uh, someone can cheat. And affections change. And it hurts. And the person who you were friends with becomes your enemy because friends can become enemy when affections change. When, when priorities change, friends can become enemies. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of a situation with a longtime friend that we had a long talk here a couple of years ago. We had been actually, you know, 
uh, hadn't, hadn't communicated for 25 years, I think. And he communicated to me that um, that there were some hurtful things that had happened to him as a result of our relationship 25 years ago. And it was like he stayed there, and I didn't even know that that was the situation, and I moved on, and and uh, priorities changed, and it seemed to him that, that what was a friend became an enemy. And it, it can happen. It can happen. Priorities change. Um Sometimes uh, it, friends become enemies because of a jersey change, okay? Uh, they become competitors. Maybe you work together and now they're a competitor with you. And, and rather than staying friends, they have become enemies. That's the case with Paul. His jersey changed. He wanted them to be a part of it, but they were now enemies. So what do you do when a friend becomes an enemy? What did I see in here? Um, two things. Number one, do what you can you got to do what you can. Paul stands before these guys and he says, calls them brothers. Calls them brothers. This is, it's happened over and over and over again. He risks his life. He's willing to take a beating if he can restore relationship through Jesus Christ. He says, here, God has changed my life. you got to hear this. This is so important for all of us. And you're not my enemy. You're brothers. you got to do what you can. You can't just let it just walk away. Relationship is much more important than that. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, He's talking about relationships and difficult relationships and sometimes when friends become enemies. He said this. He said, You've heard it that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. How many of you would agree with that? A murderer should be judged. Would you agree with that? It's not a trick question. Kind of is, but not really. You you would agree to that. Okay, four people over here. Okay. How about Irmo? Do you guys agree to that? Okay, good, good. Hands going up all over. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Are you angry with anybody right now? Okay, just listening. If you call someone an idiot... How many of you did that in the car on the way to church today? <laughs> you in it? You're in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, I'm not even going to go there. You're in danger of the fires of hell. If you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus said, because it's about an attitude. It's about an attitude. Then he goes on. So, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar at the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, relationship is so important that you need to leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Jesus said when relationships are out of kilter, when a friend has become an enemy, it's so important you need to leave whatever you're doing. You need to go deal with it and then come back. In fact, that's, uh, I, I know that's why some of you leave before the offering. We always do the offering at the very end. <laughs> I watch you. You go right by the offering box. You don't put anything in it. I just figure you're going to repair a relationship. You'll be back, you know. <laughs> he says it's so important. So important. So you got to do what you can. You got to do what you can. Second thing, though, here's the second principle. Sometimes there's not a lot you can do. There's not a lot you can do. Um, and that's the case with Paul here. 
He tries and tries and tries, but there's just not, it, it just doesn't depend on him. In fact, Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 12. He says this. He says, you know what? When you've got a friend that becomes an enemy, you're going to be tempted to be just like them. When they say bad things about you, you're going to be tempted to retaliate in the same way. Here's what he says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He says, number one, if it's your ex, wife, ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, ex-husband, ex-partner, ex-business partner, I don't care what they say about you, you have no right to trash them under any circumstances. Don't repay evil with evil. In fact, as much as it depends on you, live at peace. But here's what that verse says is sometimes it doesn't depend on you. And if it doesn't depend on you, do the right thing regardless. Verse 19, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, that's, that's one of the strongest emotions you have is to defend yourself, is to take revenge. And here he says, no, don't do that. But you don't just do nothing. You resign as general manager of the universe. And you say, God, you do it. And I'm not even going to check in about you. you know, we like to give God instructions of how it's done. Fry him like this, God. Fry him like a bratwurst on an open fire. You know, just make it miserable. You know, no, no. You go, God, you deal with it because God will bring them to repentance in His own way. Okay? We've taken way too much time. This is fun, but let's go to the next one. In an upside-down world, remember that sometimes friends can become enemies. Do the right thing. Number two, remember enemies can become friends. The biggest surprise is not the betrayal of the Jewish council. The biggest surprise is the fact that the Roman government came to call Paul's defense. See, God uses people with all colors of jerseys to accomplish His will. That's confusing to us. We, we want it real clear. They're the enemy. You know, they're the other team. And we're this team. And God goes, no, that's not always true. Sometimes you can't tell who's on what team. The disciples of Jesus are following Him. It's kind of a heady thing. Because they've gone from being like obscure fishermen to they're rock stars now. They're security for Jesus. And, you know, they're kind of... So they came to Jesus and John or uh, Luke, actually, Luke 9, 49. John came to Jesus. He said, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. Now, we ought to be excited about that, right? A demon got cast out. Use Jesus' name, but look what he says. But we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. <laughs> he's a Baptist. <laughs> or he's a Catholic. He's not in our group. He's not, it's not legal for him to do that. In fact, in another situation, they came to Jesus. They said, people are doing all kinds of things in your name. Should we call down fire on their head? Let's just nuke them. <laughs> Jesus, verse 50, said, don't stop them. Anybody who is not against you is for you. What he's saying is he's saying, don't be surprised when God uses people who you think are your enemies to actually be your friends in certain circumstances because it's hard to tell when it's a muddy day and you can't tell the jerseys from one another. I had one of those. I went to the mall here in Mount Pleasant a few years ago and I ran right square into an enemy. I said, Greg, you have enemies? 
Are there anybody in your life that you love, but you have to do it by faith? Is there anybody like that? Don't point. Don't point. But there are people in your life. You just have to love them by faith. Well, this guy was, was one of those. This was the main protagonist in um, 10 years ago when we were trying to build a bigger building here so we wouldn't have to do a umpteen jillion services in this building. Um, there was a, you know, a group that rose up and, and opposed it. And there was one guy that, it's okay to oppose stuff. I don't have a problem with that. This guy was personal. I mean, he was personal. He would say things about me. They would usually get back to me. And I understand that. When you say something about somebody, it's probably going to get back to them. And he'd say terrible, terrible things. And then he'd smile when he'd see me and all this kind of stuff. And you know, I just didn't like this guy at all. He was the leading protagonist that kept us from doing what I thought was God's will at that particular time. So two or three years later, I run into him at a mall. And you understand, every once in a while when I'd read the Scripture, pray for your enemies, I'd pray for him. God, take him out, you know. <laughs> I love to read David's Psalms, you know. Run a spear through his chest, you know, whatever, you know. And... uh when you come to a point of maturity is when you pray for your enemies for God to bless them. You don't do Old Testament prayers. That's a whole different deal. You do New Testament prayers where Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. I wasn't that mature at that point. And the guy came up to me in a, in a mall and he says, it, this is after we'd started multi-site. It had two or three sites, West and maybe another one. And, and uh, it'd been written up a little bit in the paper and it was just, it was a unique thing. It was very, very different. And, and uh, the guy came up to me and he said, well, it is so good to see you. I knew that was a lie. I don't want to see him. He didn't, probably didn't want to see me. And he said, you know, we are so proud of what your church is doing. And I thought, yeah, you're the guy that wanted us to move out of Mount Pleasant because whatever, whatever just the whole deal. I had an attitude. And, but I was smiling. And, uh, and he said, uh, don't you think that God used us in some small way to really multiply your church? And I'm thinking, yeah, just like God used the Romans who fed Christians to the lions to spread the church all over. And I'm thinking, what do you want, a medal? You know, and you're not getting your picture in the foyer, I can tell you that right now. I didn't say any of that, I just thought it. And then I said, you know, you're probably right. And smiled, shook hands, and left. And that haunted me for a couple of weeks until I finally came to the realization that he probably was right. That one who I had labeled as an enemy, God, was actually using uh, to... He was the means of grace that God was using to bring me into the will of God. And if you're too quick to label somebody as an enemy, God may be using them as actually a friend to bring about His will in your life. You just never know. And that's what brings me to the third simple lesson here is that when your world's upside down, especially relationally, Remember that God is still in control. That God is still in control. God usually works best when things are a little bit off-center. He rarely does things the way that we would expect. Isaiah 55 and verse 8 says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. Do you have a testimony on that? God does things just entirely different sometimes. God's ways are full of upside-down logic. The strong serve the weak. The foolish are wiser than the wise. The poor are truly rich. It should not surprise us when things go differently than we plan. Instead, we need to learn to trust God in the middle of the circumstances. We can't see the future. We don't know how things are working out for our good. Romans eight twenty-eight. 
These days, I am far, and this is something that I'm really, God's working in my life. I am far, far slower to label something when something happens, a circumstance happens, to label it good or bad. Because about the only way to know that is if you know the future. And if you know what God is doing behind it. So you just trust God. Chow and Lai, uh, who was a Chinese official during the rule of Mao Zedong, was once asked to assess the 1789 French Revolution. Here's what he replied. It's too early to say. <laughs> 1789, 200 years, it's too early to say. Well, that's a pretty good way to view history because a lot of times we try to interpret things that happened you know, a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago. And historians argue about the impact of things that happened 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Probably a lifetime is not enough to understand the workings of God in some situations. Instead of despairing when the world seems confusing or upside down, trust God. He's in control of every situation. That's why I love the last verse in that passage. Paul's dream was to go to Rome. Now he's confused. This is crazy. What's going on? God says to him, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you've been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. God's in control wherever you are and whatever's going on in your life. We're going to have a response time in just a minute, but I want to put just a little kind of, I want to put a capper on this, something for you to pray about and think about. I want to tell you what's going to happen in the next 90 days here at Seacoast and what's going to happen in the next 90 days in my life. Uh, I'm going to take a 90-day timeout. Now, usually timeouts are bad, but this is good. I haven't been bad, I don't think. This is good. I'm going to take a timeout to do three things. Here they are. I need you to help me on this. Number one, I'm going to write. Um, I've felt led for two or three years, really, uh, to kind of write down what's happening among us uh, so that uh, not only we'll be impacted, but our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren and people maybe who are even outside of here can share in uh, what, what, what we're learning and what, what God is doing. And um, a, uh, a large publisher... Um, for whatever reason, decided to give me a crack at it and write a book. And they've given me a 90-day um, deadline. So that means it's going to be done in 90 days or not. And uh, it's, it's a publisher that uh, did The Shack and uh, the Twilight series. Some of you are familiar with the Twilight series. You use it for your quiet times. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> for whatever reason, they've asked me to, to do a book. Now, when Rick Warren did Purpose Driven Life, he took about six months off uh, I'm a lot quicker than Rick, so I'm going to do it in 90 days. And uh, and so it, I am uh, real nervous about this. I've got to be real honest with you. I believe it's God's will, but I'd covet your prayers. I really would, that we would be able to say the things in the right way that would impact our kids, our grandkids, and our friends and neighbors uh, here and around the world. And so I'm going to be doing that for the next 90 days. I'm also going to be resting some for the next 90 days. Last year, we were going to take a little extended time to rest, and, and the cruise boat caught on fire and uh, didn't happen. And I don't know if we're going to do that again, but I am going to unplug for a little bit, un- unplug from email. And so if, if you need to email me, uh, tough. Uh, but uh, no, we're going, to, we're going to make provision for that. I'll be communicating mostly on the city. Okay, if you're in the city, I'll be kind of giving updates of what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and all that kind of stuff. So I'll be I'll be doing that, uh, but not really uh, doing a lot of email. Uh, and then I'm going to be recharging. 
Uh, some people have said, well, you're going to take 90 days off. Are you thinking about going somewhere else? Not at all. Uh, you know, God can do anything, but he would have to write that in like a jet, you know, writing in the sky or whatever. I am so excited about the next season of ministry here. I'm not just saying that. I believe there are some things we're, that's stirring around in our spirit that I think are as world-changing and radical in the church as um, multi-site was 10 years ago. And I think that God is going to use us to do some, uh, some things, I think, that are going to be incredible. And so I'm charged up about the next ministry season. And uh, I believe that God is leading us as a church into some unplowed ground. So what will the next 90 days look like? Uh, that's what it looked like for me. What about for you as a church? Uh, pretty much what it looks like right now, to be honest with you. Two things I love about this church. Number one, you get the fact that the church is not about the weekends. What we do here is important, but we don't go to church. We are the church. We gather together on the weekend to kind of get refreshed so that we can go out and do the stuff. So we can go out and be missional and incarnational. And you guys get that. And so that's, that's good. I love that. The second thing I love is that um, uh, we're not dependent on one, just one speaker and teacher. I'm hoping this isn't a, a, a personality church just built on Greg. I think that a lot of mega churches are. I really do. And if the pastor was hit by a bus, the church would collapse. I, I, really, I really do believe that. Uh, a few years ago, we decided, you know what? We don't want to do that. We don't want to be that. We, we began to share the teaching to a great degree, share the leadership to a great degree. And I, I'm not just saying this. I think that some of the greatest teachers in America are right here in this church. And I just love hearing them teach. I really do. And so they're excited. They're going to get more swings at the bat. Plus, I got friends. I brought my friends in every once in a while. You guys think that I've got some friends that can really bring a good message. Well, this is going to be, give me an opportunity to bring more of them in. And we're going to do that. And I can't wait just to sit there in the, in the congregation with you and receive what God's going to give us. The bottom line is God is in control. He'll give us just what we need each weekend. And I'm asking for prayer from you. Uh, so... I'm asking you to pray for me for 90 days. I'm going to pray for you for 90 seconds, okay? So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity uh, to share the good news. Lord, thank you for this chapter that is so powerful and so strong. And Lord, I pray that you would apply it to our lives now as we head into a new season. And Lord, I, um, I pray that you would just uh, give us a spirit of openness and honesty in these next few moments as we seek you and seek your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.